Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. We're going to study this next paragraph in this chapter together. Hear now God's word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." Let's pray together. Lord, we long for that description to put on the new self that reflects the inner self, the reborn self that is made in the likeness and the image of God that pursues holiness and righteousness. Would you make us a people that long for these things, that desire these things, that are shaped by these things, We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles. Now just last week we were in verse 15, which says we're speaking the truth in love. And we made the point that in the church as believers, we all as Christians now need to relearn how to talk to each other. We knew how to talk in the world, we knew the words of the world, but now that we're born again, we have an entirely new way of talking to each other, flushing the old, bringing on the new, and we've got to relearn how to talk to one another. Well, here today, just a couple of verses later, we're learning that we need to relearn how to walk with each other. You know, there's a fake version of Christianity that doesn't ask for either of those things. You can have it and adopt it and subscribe to it, and you don't need to relearn anything. You don't need to relearn how to walk or talk. You can do the same walking and talking that you did in the world that you're now going to do in the church. It's a way of accepting Jesus as our Savior, but not as our Lord. Like, you can trust in him to take your sins from you so that you have assurance that when you die, you will join him in heaven, but you have not received him as your master and your king and your Lord because you still are living the way you want to live. That's not real Christianity. That's fake Christianity, and it doesn't cost anything. It doesn't cost the cross that Jesus died on, and it doesn't cost the cross of taking up that same cross and following Jesus. It's a cut flower, house cat, domesticated variety of Christianity and religion that's going to fit into our current lifestyle with very little change to ourselves. I think... Online, secular, dating websites understand this fake version of Christianity better than any of us. Because on those websites, 
you are asked a lot of biographical information in order of their importance to kind of size you up with a potential mate. And so you get asked, number one, are you a Democrat or a Republican? Number two, did you go to Carolina or Clemson? Number seven, do you like long walks on the beach? And number 37, what's your religion? Like, what do you do on Friday evenings or Saturdays or Sunday mornings or whenever you worship? What's your religion? And the assumption in that questionnaire is these are the most important things about you. And number 37 is going to stay number 37. It's not going to interfere with numbers 1 through 36. There's a way for it to fit snugly into what you're already doing. Beware of that kind of Christianity. It's not real It will not fit snugly. It has nothing to do with the Bible. We were hanging out with the family this past week, and when we left, one of the kids said to his parents, Man, I wish my dad was a pastor. He works only on Sundays, and he's got the rest of the week to hang out. That's awesome. I wish my dad was like that. Well, thank you for having that impression of me. But that's a version of Christianity. Man, I'd like that religion. It, it says something about Sunday, and it kind of organizes my Sunday morning, but it leaves me alone Monday through Saturday. Beware of that fake Christianity. It's not real, and it's not recognized in the Bible. When we come to the Apostle Paul, after everything he said in chapters 1 through 3 on this faith and the manner of conversion, he is working on the assumption that this is real and that it changes everything. That Jesus is not a wistful thought or a good idea. He was a historic person, God who came in the flesh, who lived a verifiable life, that he literally died and ceased to live on the cross. He was buried and then his physical body came back to life to defeat sin and death. And if that really happened historically 2,000 years ago in God's grand plan for the world, then Easter changes absolutely everything. There is not a square inch of the cosmos, seen and unseen, that does not fall under the jurisdiction of what has happened on that weekend in Easter. It changes absolutely everything. Everything for the world, everything for the afterlife, and certainly everything that happens in our lives. We talked about talking Now we're talking about walking in these two paragraphs. We're just getting started. This is like the easy stuff. Easter is going to go on and change absolutely everything about us. That's real Christianity. That is biblical Christianity. Listen to the way Paul talks about this in verse 17. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. Now, when Paul says that we're Gentiles there, he actually means non-ethnic, non-religious Jews, um, 
who don't know God. He's talking about Gentiles, non-Jews. But in this passage, in this context, we can't do this everywhere in the New Testament, but here he's using that word synonymously with the world. It's as if Paul is writing, don't walk as the world does. Christian, don't continue to walk as the Gentiles, as those who don't know God, as the world is now walking. Now, before we get puffed up as the church, kind of looking down on the world and this description of the world, remember that this paragraph describes every single person in this room, where we came from, and what we struggle with right now. This isn't like a pity party for the world and how lost the world is. This is a reminder that every person here is coming out of the world has the world clinging to them, and keeps, doggone it, returning to the exact same things that we had once come out of. We don't read this passage with pride. We read it with deep humility, and we long for God to change us. I don't want to live that way. I came from that. I return to that every day, every hour. I don't want that. I want something new. God changed the way I walk and change the way I talk. Now, if you just dropped into Ephesians right here this morning, and you just heard that little description, don't walk as the world does, walk in this new way, you could have a misrepresentation of what the gospel is really saying. You could begin to think that this is what the substance of Christianity is. It's turning from bad living and turning towards good living. And there are a lot of well-intentioned people who believe that today. When you sit with somebody and you ask them, tell me about your faith, tell me about your hope in God, tell me about your assurance of salvation, how do you know when you stand before God on judgment day that he will receive you into his fold? There are many people today who would say, because I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to do what's right. I used to do what was wrong. I used to struggle with these addictions. And now I'm getting over those things. And I'm trying to put that behind me. And I'm getting on the right track. And I'm doing what God says. I'm showing up at church. I'm reading my Bible. I want to be a good person. I'm trying to do what's right. That is not the substance of the gospel. Paul is going to go on to say that right living, righteous living is only in the Bible born out of a vibrant, personal relationship with Jesus Christ himself. Now, this is fascinating in our paragraph, because I didn't catch this the first five times I read it. I kind of skimmed over this, and I didn't see what Paul is actually saying to us in verses 20 and 21. Look at this. I'll read it as it's stated here in the ESV. That's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now let me tell you the first way I read it, and then let me tell you how it is most appropriately translated in the Greek. When I first read this, I read, you learned about Christ. But really the passage says, you learned Christ. When I first read it, I read it how it's translated here. You heard about him, but it really should be translated, you heard him. 
I read taught about him, it's really taught in him. I read the truth about Jesus, it's really the truth in Jesus. The difference between learning about Christ and learning Christ is a very small grammatical one and an enormous relational one. Think about when you meet someone and they say to you, oh, I've heard all about you. Now, inflection really matters when somebody says that, right? There's a lot of ways to say those same words. Oh, I've heard all about you. Oh, I've heard all about you. Oh, I've heard about you. So, no matter what the inflection is, when you hear somebody say that, you don't say, well, great, you've heard all about me. I don't need to say anything else. You know me. No, none of us say that. We think to ourselves, what have you heard about me? And is it really true? And when can we get past knowing about me and actually knowing me, like talking to me and hearing it firsthand? That's precisely the difference of those two readings in Ephesians chapter 4. Now think about the context here. Thinking, think about what Paul is doing as a pastor. When we started this letter, we understood that Paul planted this church in Ephesus. He went to modern-day Turkey. He planted this church. He spent three years with them. He did great work there. And then, as Paul does, he left that church and planted other churches, leaving Ephesus behind. And now he's writing a letter to Ephesus. And this may actually be seven years after he planted that church. So it's been a long time since Paul has actually been in the city with this church talking to these people. And so he's writing to a group of people he doesn't know super well. New people have come in. He hasn't kept up with all his old acquaintances there. And he doesn't want to presume that just because someone is at the church in Ephesus, they belong to the church in Ephesus. That just because someone is here hearing about Jesus, that they have actually personally heard Jesus. Do you see the pastoral care there in Paul putting his finger on that very point? That's a great practice in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. That's a great practice to do here in our church today. We're all here this morning. We all understand that this is a church. We all knew what we signed up for, for this service, whether we came voluntarily or someone drug us here. I I think we can assume that every single person in this room has heard about Jesus. That's not a new name to us. We've heard about him and we've learned about him. We've heard things about him. The question that presses in to us this morning from our text is not have we heard about him, but Christian, friend, newcomer, have we heard him? Do you know Jesus? Do you trust in Jesus? Do you learn Jesus? Do you hear Jesus? Do you walk with Jesus? That's the most significant question any one of us can ask ourselves. Do you know Christ? I think one of the best places to walk ourselves through that question is Ephesians chapter 2, just a couple of pages ago, verses 1 through 10. 
In fact, I've sat with different friends at different times and just walked through this passage, letting it speak for itself to say, do I believe this? Do I know this? Do I trust this? In verses 1 through 3, it presses the question, do I know that I have sinned? Do I agree with God that it's not just that I've slipped up, messed up, made mistakes, but that I have truly and to my core rebelled against a holy God? That I've lived in the pattern of the world, the pattern of my desires, I've done what I've wanted to do, that I've rejected God and run from Him. Do I own that I stand before God as a sinner? Verses 4 through 9, instead of trying to then clean myself up and do better and, and make a New Year's resolution that I won't do that anymore, but I'm going to live on the right uh, straight and narrow path, I find that I've come to the end of myself and I throw myself on Jesus alone. I confess my sin to him. I repent of my sin and believe that he takes the fullness of my sin on the cross to pay its penalty and he gives me the righteousness of Christ and I stand forgiven. And then, point number three, and just as important, in verse 10, God says this new life, this grace-filled life, is going to be full of good works. If I've really, truly been converted, if the Holy Spirit really lives inside of me and and bends me towards God's will, I'm going to see fruit of that in my life. I'm going to see new desires in my life. I'm going to see new longings in my life. I'm going to see new fruit in my life. I'm not going to live perfectly. I'm going to sin every day as a brand new Christian, but I am going to see this new hunger and thirst for righteousness. Friend, I ask you, is this you? Do you know that beyond a shadow of a doubt before God who is in our presence this morning? This is one of those moments in the morning service that can get crowded out by other moments. We're going to finish up in the next 10 minutes or so. We're going to sing. We're going to greet each other. And it's easy to get distance from this. I think it is internally imperative that we pause here Go before God in prayer and ask him, is this me? Have I trusted in Jesus alone for my salvation? We're going to pause and pray. I've got a few more minutes to preach and then we're going to close. But as we pray, I'm going to give us space in our seats this morning to pray to God. I'm talking to you adults. I'm talking to you kids in our midst. Use this silence to go before God, and then I'll pray, and then we'll preach a little more. If you want to kneel, I'm going to kneel. If you want to bow your head in your seat, you can do that as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning.
Heavenly Father, we are humbled by the gravity of this moment to come before you and to allow your word to press upon us. Is this true? And has this happened? It takes enormous humility to ask that question as a person sitting in a church building. Is this true of me? When your son was here, he said that preaching the gospel is like a farmer who takes a big bag of seed and he walks out into a field and he takes a handful of that good gospel seed and he scatters it over the field. And as that gospel goes forth, the free offer that anyone can repent and trust in Jesus alone for his salvation, it falls on very different kinds of soil. Some of that seed is going to fall on a hard, packed path. There will be people who have grown up in the church, who think that they have done this a long time ago when they prayed a prayer or walked an aisle, and they don't want to be bothered about thoughts of their true conversion, and they will be the hard-packed earth that a bird takes the seed away. Father, there are kids, these 50 kids, zero to five, Lord Jesus, There will be some parents who think that because they bring their kids here on a Sunday morning and because Christians smile at them, that their conversion is inevitable. And they won't take moments to pray with them and confess their own sin to them and preach the gospel to them. And that child may very well be like the hard-packed soil that the bird takes the seed away from them. There are going to be people in our midst who, who the seed falls in its shallow soil or soil that's surrounded by thorns and there's some excitement about the gospel. They, they, they want to do it and they long for it and they get busy with Christian things but the cares and the deceits of the world, sin and suffering and sometimes money and wealth will grow up and choke that little vine and it will not bear fruit. But then you promise that there are soils that you make soft, hearts that you make ready to receive this gospel, to repent and believe, and they become like a field of wheat that that grow and bear fruit 30 and 60 and 100 fold. Would you make every soul in this building today the soft soil that receives and responds to your gospel? Let it be so by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, whatever God has done in your heart, I pray that you will talk to somebody about this. I can't imagine the humility involved in actually reaching out to someone to talk about your eternal soul or how to parent a child and lead them to Christ, but it is the most important thing that we do. My phone number is at the bottom of the bulletin. If you respond to me or reach out to me, I may talk to you. I may connect you with a godly man or woman in this church to talk about your soul and how you might have assurance of your salvation. May it be so. May it be so. I just want to take a few minutes to finish by pointing out God's will for what comes next after salvation. If this is true, if we are born again, this is what God says. He's already told us in chapters 1, 2, and 3 that if we repent and believe, we're forgiven of our sin. 
that we are loved and cherished, that he unites us with Jesus, that we're seated in the heavenly places, that we hear Jesus, that we learn Jesus, that we walk with Jesus. Sin and suffering and doubt and the devil, they don't change our status. Even as we go from here in Ephesians, and we're going to hear some very punchy commands on obedience to the risen Christ. Even as we walk out of here and fail to walk and talk like a believer should, even as we wake up tomorrow in our workplaces and fail to walk and talk as a believer should, we are promised that when God sees a born-again believer, he sees not that failure, but the perfect, spotless righteousness of his son, Jesus. Praise God for that. But even as he's changed our beings, Paul gives us this brilliant living metaphor for what's going to happen next. He says, when you're born again and your being is changed, it's a battle of the coats that we wear. As a born again believer, will I put on this new overcoat, this beautiful, shining, fragrant coat of Christ? Or will I keep taking it off and putting on the coat that I got in the world? That's tattered rags that reeks of what the world does and where I've come from. Which coat am I going to wear at any given moment? This is what he says in verses 22 and 24. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Christian, we are not the coat that we wear. There are very stubborn souls in this church that keep throwing off the new coat and putting back on the old coat. We are not the coat that we wear. But even so, God has something better for us. Look at these promises. The Holy Spirit in us responds to these verses and says, yes, this is what I want for myself. God wants me to take off old habits, old sins, old addictions, old patterns in my life, old false belief, old ways that I get so easily entangled. And he actually wants to dress me here and now, this side of heaven, in a brand new garment that looks like God in his holiness and his righteousness. That's some of the sweetest news that a believer in Christ can hear. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, make us a people, a church, a family that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. We are so tired of nibbling on the table of the world, of of thirsting for salt water that does not satisfy. Make us a people when we hear this description of a new self with a new coat, we are struck between the eyes of our hearts and the Spirit responds, that's exactly what I want. Because it brings pleasure to my Father. It brings glory to my Father. It's what I've been made and remade to do. And that's what I long for. Do that in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.